Because you can have a, an ICO and a, a CEO and a CFO, right? You can raise a bunch of money and go buy a bunch of deals. But if you don't have the boots on the ground and the actual operational team, because mobile home parks are unlike other asset classes, you cannot hire it out to property managers and third-party third party property managers, unless they own the third-party property management team, it typically doesn't work out in the favor of the operator. And it's very hard to scale effectively with mobile home parks. So keep that in mind. Mobile home parks are a different asset class. We typically don't own the home, so we only own the land. So it does create a little bit of uh, some, some efficiencies you can get, but it's harder to scale effectively. What's going on, guys? This is the Passive Wealth Strategy Show, the show that will help you escape the Wall Street casino and build wealth on Main Street by investing in real estate. Today, our guest is Ryan Roney, and today we're talking about mobile home parks, scaling up in mobile home parks. Ryan went from zero in mobile home parks, to now he's done 15 mobile home park deals and a few others. He's got RV parks and self-storage, but today we're focusing on the mobile home parks, really what it took him to get started and scale up and what he's up to today. We talk about lessons that he's learned along the way, things that passive investors in mobile home parks should look for and really look to avoid or make sure that these things are not in the deal or they're taken care of and accounted for in those deals and, and so much more. Mobile home parks have gained a lot of popularity over the last few years and for good reason. And Ryan's been there. He was ahead of that wave a bit and he's watched that happen and we get that retrospective from him. So a lot of great information today. And if you're thinking about investing in mobile home parks, I think this is a great interview to listen to and take some lessons from. I'm your host, Taylor Lote. I'm a real estate investor and I help busy people passively invest in commercial real estate, specifically in apartment buildings and self-storage properties. If you're interested in learning more and potentially investing with us on a future deal, just go to investwithtaylor.com fill out the form and schedule a call with me. Once again, that address is investwithtaylor.com. If you're an Apple Podcast user and you enjoy the show, please do take a moment and leave us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts. Five stars if you don't mind, you guys. I appreciate that so much. That helps other people learn about the show because that helps us rank higher in the Apple Podcast ecosystem. And I'm always honest with you guys. I say this every show and I mean it every single time. That gives me a nice little warm and fuzzy feeling because I get to see that you're engaging with the content and you're escaping the Wall Street casino along with us. No matter what podcast app you use, don't forget to look us up, hit the subscribe button. That way you'll get every new episode every Monday, Tuesday, and Thursday. That's when we're here. That's when we're doing it. That's when we're helping you guys escape the Wall Street casino. Once again, our guest today is Ryan Groney. Today, we're learning about scaling in mobile home parks, things to avoid in mobile home park investments or red flags, if you will, in mobile home park investments and so much more. Without any further ado, here we go. Ryan, thank you for joining us today. Of course. Yeah. Happy to be here, Taylor. You have such interesting experience in the mobile home park space, and we're going to dig into that a bit today. For our listeners out there who don't know about you, your business and your background, can you tell us a bit about where you come from and uh, what you do? Yeah, so my background is in finance. I'm from Cincinnati, Ohio. Grew up, you know, the traditional, you know, go to college, get a job type of type of situation. My parents, they worked pretty much for companies their whole lives. My dad has now done the entrepreneurial thing. He works for himself, still self-employed. So I kind of saw that growing up, um, kind of always subconsciously looking at, at different businesses, stuff like that. Went to college, played baseball, got a finance degree, got out, got my first job. We actually were talking about that before the show. 
you know, was selling like I was like a financial advisor that didn't fit my suit. Got a corporate finance job for a big five Fortune 500 company. Worked there for five years. Stumbled upon mobile home parks um, just by pure chance. I looked to find car washes, laundromats, any business under the sun that was quote unquote passive, right? That everybody talks about. I had also read Rich Dad Poor Dad in college, so it's kind of started flowing into my head. And that when you go to school for finance, you're kind of trained a little bit differently than what everybody thinks, right? You know about money, you know how money works, but you're trained or I guess educated in the sense that how can we make the the corporation more money? How do we look at different investments from a Wall Street perspective? Because my where I went to school, Miami University, they trained us in the business school basically to kind of go work on Wall Street from the investment banking private equity side, which is basically derived at um, making the most making deals, massive deals happen, and making fees like through the deals. Basically, essentially how the investment bankings work. Obviously, there's more to that, but um, so, anyways, stumbled upon mobile home parks, kind of fell in love with the asset class for a number of reasons. Took me three years to buy my first deal, and then uh, I went full time in 2017. I was a full time uh, mobile home park owner operator. Since my first park, uh, I've since then bought 15 more parks with partners. Um, I also have an RV park and some self storage, but primarily it's been mobile home parks. Um, in the Midwest and the Southeast. I now reside in Charleston, South Carolina. I've been here for a few years. It's great weather. You're up in, in Richmond, kind of similar climates, but a little bit further south, which I enjoy. Supposed to get some ice today here in the middle of December, <laughs> but uh, or in, in January. Um, we'll see though. I haven't seen ice or snow in quite some time. So it uh, should be a good, good little, uh, everything shuts down for the weekend. So that's kind of a little bit of background on me. I'm happy to dive in further on why I chose mobile home parks, but my high level kind of, two-minute overview on who I am. Awesome. Well, one of my favorite things, I originally grew up in Pennsylvania. I've been in Virginia for a number of years now. One of my favorite things about the South is how when we get actual weather, everything just shuts down. Winter weather in particular, people relax. And you know, I love that part. So you got into mobile home parks and like when people are getting started uh, doing their own deals, especially if they're they're very young, they don't have the capital, that stops a lot of people dead in their tracks. They they don't get to that, you know, 15th property uh, like you did. So, you know, let's get into it took you said it took you three years to close that first deal, which looking back on it, you know, might not seem that long to some people, but that three years was probably a grind, right? Of really trying to make things happen. Am I right? Yeah, yeah no, it is completely. And also, you know, money uh, is always stopping me. Um, Because it seems like every deal that I get, uh, we're looking for capital or my capital is out the door on something else. If I refi or sell something or, you know, we we get an influx of of capital, I redeploy it quickly. So, yeah, that first, you know, stretch from 2015 to 2017 is 18 ish. um, You know, you first get educated in the space, right? That typically takes, you know, can take you a month, can take six months. I spent, I think, a few thousand dollars on the Mobile Home University, Frank Rolf and Dave Reynolds, their boot camp. It's like a three day boot camp. I was 25. I had just dated, started dating my girlfriend, Allison. She's like, you're going where? I went to a mobile home park conference. And my first experience was we were riding over to one of the properties. And Frank was like, uh, we could have picketers here because we're raising the rents. It's in Austin, Texas. Um, they were raising them like $100, which is a lot. But at, at it, it was at that particular property, you know, the lot rents were still even significantly under market. That was my first experience. And I'm like, oh, I don't know if I want to buy these anymore. So anyways, get home, get over the initial allure of, of all the educational and kind of just sucking from a fire hose, essentially. I did my own database, did my own mailers, did everything myself for like a year or two. 
I got a few deals under contract at that time. So talking with people, I have some capital, but I'll have a ton. And then I just, for whatever one reason or the other, I never ended up purchasing uh, those parks that I had under contract during that time. I was going through the routine. I was, you know, calling owners, deal, looking at properties. So I wasn't just like sitting around. It's, it's I mean, it, it takes a lot of time and effort to, to go from zero to one. And then once you get past one, the ball starts rolling and it's significantly easier because owners, you know, being I was 25 to 28 uh, when I bought my first property, owners didn't necessarily take me as seriously, right? Because, you know, you're talking... Even if it's a few hundred thousand dollars, people look at you, they're like, you're how old? I'm like, yeah, blah, blah, blah. So, and then when you tell them you own a park, it's a totally different conversation. So my first park, I actually emptied my 401k, paid the taxes, um, and bought it with a few partners. We have since sold that property. We sold it last year at the end of 2021. And um, it worked out. I mean, we like over five times our money, but um, that was my first property. It was 75 units. It was a mobile home park. For those out there that say, you know, well, I'm going to start small and and uh, and trade up. While that's a while it's doable, and I'm not advising go buy a 75 unit whatever. Um, start small. I had never owned anything. I still to this day, don't own a single family house. I, I rent my apartment, and so I didn't like start and then trade up. I started kind of bigger and then kind of just kind of basically focused on mobile home parks. All I can say is, if you're going to choose an asset class, just focus on it, and then just stay stay the course. And it's okay to pivot, but you know, at least stay the course for six months to a year, not just a month, and say, "All right, well, there's no deals. I'm not going to buy anything." So yeah, and that's that. I think that gets to that shiny object syndrome that a lot of people in real estate who are you know entrepreneurial may experience. I certainly did. Is is you just get distracted, bounce yeah. from one thing to another, and don't spend enough time focusing, and frankly you know, failing and falling on your face often enough. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we, I have it to this day. I mean, heck, that's why we bought a RV park and uh, two self-storage facilities. I wouldn't really call it shiny object there. You know, we've reached uh, not a plateau in our business, but we've reached where deals are a little bit harder than what they were still available, but they're just different these days. So we're, we're chasing yield and other asset classes because we, I like the other asset classes too, but I, number one is mobile that's what I do day in, day out. And reason being is number one, they're not building any more of them. So you have a limited supply, but huge demand for affordable housing. Other than obviously the cash flow, for every dollar we bring in in revenue, we typically spend 30 to 40% of that. So the profit margins are relatively high. Um, and then you have a, a sticky tenant base, meaning the, the residents that are there were non-subsidized housing. Sticky meaning a mobile home is not as mobile as what it would they typically cost anywhere from five to ten thousand dollars to move, and most of our residents do not have that in the bank. We're affordable housing. We're um, in good locations and we're safe, clean, affordable housing in America. It, it is what it is, um, and it's it's kind of the not last stop shop for people. But a lot of our people are either maybe had um, a hiccup in their own life in a previous life, they're retired, and now they're on a fixed income. Um, or they just work, you know, they're starting out and they have a family and, and they may work a, a lower wage job, right? Most of our residents make between twenty dollars and $30,000 a year. Some make more and choose to live in a mobile home park um, and some make less. Um, and the fourth is kind of the taxes on it. We have different depreciation schedules. You can do some cost save stuff with mobile home parks that apartments don't have. That's honestly the, some of the top reasons why I like mobile home parks and still like them to this day. But number one is the moat feature, right? That Warren Buffett kind of talks about. It's an insulated asset class. They're not really building any more of them. And, and it's a great asset class to be in at this time. Um, through COVID, um, we had our struggles, but we got money eventually from residents. Um, but it's been a good asset class to own. And a contrarian investment, meaning when, economy, when the economies are bad, it, when the economy is bad in the United States, 
mobile home parks tend to do a little bit better because the people that just are above the fringe line income-wise, they then may um, have something happen in their life. So they then have to come down to live in a mobile home park, which is not bad or good. It's just that it's more affordable, right? Our average lot rent is like $350 across our portfolio, which is about the national average. Um, so it's really, really low, right? Where can you live? And maybe in a, in a class A location, right? Where you can pay three to $400 and own your own home. It's kind of unheard of. And that's why mobile home parks are an important feature in the housing crisis that we have in in, in the United States right now, as far as affor- as far as affordability goes, because the average I think two bedroom three bedroom rent is is over a thousand dollars in most markets. I know my my apartment in Charleston is over a thousand. Um, the housing in here is crazy. Um, I think the medium housing price here is close to four or five hundred thousand. So that's um, a little bit about the asset class and why I like it and why I continue to be bullish on it. Absolutely. Now, something that even, you know, there's a housing cycle since the Great Recession, but even over the last few years through the pandemic and everything like that, there's been a, a, a lot of changes in the real estate market. And, and one of those changes is that mobile home park investing got a lot more popular, uh, at least, you know, in this space. And, and I'm sure, you know, you noticed that and that may be, you know, impacting deal flow. What's your experience been there, especially since the beginning of COVID, when people saw that, hey, mobile home parks are still largely performing and more money, you know, basically ran into that space. Mm-hmm. So um, what you're talking about is a consolidation. So it's, it is consolidation, meaning private equity groups, uh, larger institutional players. Institutional meaning they have 50 to 100 million or more to invest, right? Um, not just a few million, which is still a lot of money to invest in this case, but I'm talking primarily above 25 to 50 million in groups that are coming in and swooping up large portfolios. And when I started in 2015, I would mail out maybe 100 letters. I'd probably get eight to 10 phone calls. So really, really good response rate with, yeah, with letter. And people would be willing to sell at like nine and 10 caps, sometimes even higher. And I'm not joking. And I, I was too inexperienced to realize the writing on the wall. Um, and then it started about 2017 to 2019 is where it kind of got a little strange. Um, you had a lot more players starting to come in. They knew what was going on with parks. And then, you know, Sam Zell with Equity Lifestyles, he's been the number one mobile home park owner for a while. I think so, he might have been overtaken here recently by Sun. But anyways, the last 10 years, he's been the number one. He's never sold a mobile home park. And he's been buying since the 70s. That tells you anything about the asset class Wild. on its own. He's actually trying to buy more. But anyways, there's been a large groups that are coming in and what it has done since interest rates have always been have been are, are super low right now they're going to go up but they were it compressed cap rates so now you're seeing deals that that would have traded two years ago at like a six to seven cap now they're trading at three to four cap and they're locking in debt for two to four percent so that's what's happening right and you have mid mid-sized players like me where i have to return money to investors or even my own capital i don't want to only earn a three percent return if i take cash for it Obviously, we're earning, we're putting debt on our assets, so we earn a little bit higher leveraged uh, return. But let's just assume I paid cash. I don't want three percent of my money. I'd rather just hold it in the bank, and I know I'd lose money, but I just I don't want that return. So, you know, with that being said, the the space and there's not they're not building any more of it. So you have kind of this massive problem, and a lot of guys are getting bought out. Their portfolios are getting sold. Blackstone is make black yeah Blackstone or BlackRock one of the two. Is making a massive run. Their 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 street name is Treeside Communities. They actually merged with another top operator, 
they either bought out their portfolio. There's been a there's been a bunch of trades recently. Still will continue to be. And me myself, I've been approached, and we've we've sold part to larger operators that then go and sell their portfolio to another larger operator. So then it becomes everything funnels to the top, and it kind of leaves a lot of like scattered deals across you know the United States, and there are a lot of just broken mobile home parks that. Still leaves opportunities for guys like me because we're value-add investors, but um, it's it's becoming harder and harder because there's a lot more money flowing into the space and there, there's a limiting supply. So when you have that, it's just it, it creates lower returns and probably will stay like that. I really, even if interest rates go up, I don't think parks are gonna uh, the cap rates are gonna go up with them. I think they're gonna stay flat for a while. Now apartments may go up, but parks I think are still gonna stay where they are. I mean, even if rates go up a point or two. So and that's just being that it's a type of coupon type investment, meaning it's pretty safe relative to other assets. So in that vein, you know, there's more players in the space. There are more people investing and uh, yields are, you know, compressed. I think that leads to passive investors wondering, okay, there's more players. That probably means there are more inexperienced players in the space doing, you know, bad deals, maybe only winning because they're frankly overpaying or they're not seeing a particular aspect that's that's wrong with deals. So they pay too much. They don't do the right due diligence. And so that leads me to to want to ask you, you know, for the folks out there that are looking at passively investing in deals, what are some deal killers that come to mind or, or you know, red flags or anything along those lines that people should, you know, look out for? In the deal specifically or for the operator? I would say I would leave it, certainly leave it open to both because you, you don't have a deal without an operator, right? Mm-hmm. So number one, let's start with the, the operator. If they're promising you that they're buying at four and five caps and they're promising a 20% IRR or 20% cash on cash, that's and their debt is three to four percent. I can say that I'm not saying that they can't hit that, but I'm saying with those numbers, it's really hard to do. Even if it's a if it's a stabilized deal, now if it's a value add or some major turnaround, you're gonna hit that on the refi or like that. But if they're saying it's a it's a light value add, we're just gonna raise rents and build back water and we're gonna hit 20% on a five cap. That's not how numbers work because what they're what they're doing is they're they're modeling for an exit or refinance at a lower cap rate than what they're buying. So it creates a massive back exit. And typically you want to shy away from that because you don't know what the future holds. I mean, it could be that, but I wouldn't necessarily bank on that. Also, inexperience in the space, but maybe they quickly grew, right? So you want to vet their team a little bit more. And if they don't have proven operators within their team, because you can have a, a nice CEO and a, a CEO and a CFO, right? You can raise a bunch of money and go buy a bunch of deals. But if you don't have the boots on the ground and the actual operational team, because mobile home parks are unlike other asset classes, you cannot hire it out to property managers and third party third party property managers unless they own the third party property management team. It typically doesn't work out in the favor of the operator. And it's very hard to scale effectively with mobile home parks. So keep that in mind. Mobile home parks are a different asset class. We typically don't own the home, so we only own the land. So it does create a little bit of uh, some, some efficiencies you can get, but it's harder to scale effectively because you can't outsource management. So you need a lot of personnel on your team, boots on the ground and in the back office. Number two, with the deals itself, private utilities and aging infrastructure. So... If you have um, a lot of these parks were built in the 60s and 70s, and even some of the 80s, we're nearing the useful life of the infrastructure, meaning water, sewer lines, 
streets, everything. Water and sewer lines are your biggest and costly expense in a mobile home park because typically you own them. Even on private utilities on well, well water and septic or like a wastewater treatment plant, those are 50 plus years old. You're going to have to replace them. And if you can't replace them, you're basically buying a park that's going to die and you're going to have to scrape it. I mean, you're, you're, I mean, if you septic systems, for example, if you cannot connect the city sewer or you cannot replace the septics because you don't have enough land to replace the septic system, or you don't do proper due diligence and, and understand what the useful life of this is, if you don't know what you're getting into, you could have a massive capital expenditure in a year or two years. Um, you've got to understand your infrastructure and then also doing a phase one, like an environmental study. It is definitely important to do that because you don't know what the past performance of the land is and you want to guarantee that you're not buying like some type of EPA super fund where it used to be like a nuclear plant or, <laughs> or a dry cleaner or something else, right? Because you'd be surprised what was done even 30, 40 years ago. In some of these towns. There was no real regulations in a lot of these towns and people would just dump stuff in, into the earth until like the 80s. I think that's when it kind of all changed. But heck, where I used to live in Cleveland, Ohio, the river caught on fire because they were dumping so much pollutants in, in the 70s. And uh, yeah, so you don't know what you're buying. So you want to do proper due diligence. You want to know the market. You also want to understand that just because you're buying a mobile home park, location is still important. The number one thing, you still want to be in good good school districts. And if you're in the hood, a mobile home park is going to be the worst than those apartments because uh, that's just from my experience. So Interesting. So uh, quite a big list there. I've heard you yeah. mentioned utilities in particular. I've heard folks talk about wastewater treatment plants or like lagoons being a big, you know, problem, which, you know, I, I'm not really sure what exactly that is, but it doesn't paint a pretty picture. Yeah. It's a, it's a big lake and then it filters out all the cesspool and then you actually have to clean all the human waste um, and byproduct like toilet paper. And it's basically a, a, the city sewer is basically on your property. Just think of it that way. So Ooh. yeah, it's, it's, it's expensive. And it's also, those can be infrastructure is the number one deal killer typically because you can fix, you can't and location, but you can typically fix infrastructure. You can fix tenants, but you can't fix location. So if you buy in a bad location, I would say that's actually the number one deal killer. Everything else can be fixed typically. So before we hit record, you were uh, telling me about a property that you guys recently acquired not too far from me here in Virginia. And we were talking about a, a different potential exit strategy with that particular deal. I don't, I, that deal is closed from my understanding, so we could probably talk about it here. But um, mm -hmm. I wanted to to dig into that because I hadn't heard of that exact strategy before, but it makes a lot of sense. So can you tell us about that? Yeah, so so that's not typically. So what, what Taylor's referencing is um, I mentioned a covered land. Plate. So that's what you're specifically talking yeah. about, correct? Yeah. yeah, so basically with mobile home parks, because there's a uh, limited supply and we're buying in typically A and B class neighborhoods. So the land itself from a tax perspective from the government and just the overall usefulness of the land is typically better off being something else. So it's a covered land play because we have a potential exit strategy in the future to sell to a developer or redevelop it ourselves, right? We could redevelop it into single family houses, into a strip center, into multifamily, something that uh, the actual land value would be worth more because it could be developed into something else. That's not always the case. And the covered land play is because we're collecting cash or getting cash flow through the asset. And then the exit could be, we sell it to another mobile home park operator, we refinance it, or we sell it to a developer or we develop it ourselves, right? So that's the covered land play piece. 
And a lot of times these parks were built in areas where it wasn't necessarily like that. A lot of mobile home parks, you'll see like a house and then you'll see the mobile homes around it. And they were maybe like out in the country a little bit, but then the, the town grew that way. So now 50, 40 years later, it's a class A neighborhood and everybody wants to live there. So, you know, apartment building would make way more sense than a mobile home park because um, from the city's perspective, they get more taxes. They also get higher income people that live in apartments, assuming it's not affordable housing. And they get a little bit more affluent type of person in their eyes. Therefore, they can tax more and they can collect more money from the government side versus a mobile home park, which honestly doesn't derive a lot of taxes for, for the city. And they a lot of times the residents use a lot of the, the free stuff out there that taxpayers pay for. So they see it as a drain on on the city themselves. And let's be honest, nobody really likes having a mobile home park in their backyard. And that's why it's not my backyard type of stuff. So they try to shut us down all the time. It's always a battle. I have that going on right now in a deal. The city wants to get rid of us. And, and we've kind of won them over a little bit with our plan, but the old owner was terrible to them. So it left an uphill battle. It's always an uphill battle. Never, Whenever I go to a real estate event, I'm the mobile home park guy. So it's like all hot and great now, but like two, three years ago, people were like, you're buying what and why? So it's come full circle, but that's just, it's always an uphill battle. Well, you know, when back in the day when the mobile home park guy was the, you know, the crazy nut job, those things were much more cash machines than they are today that because they were, they were just considered less attractive. But this deal in particular, I thought it was really interesting because before we got on the call, I looked it up on the map and I saw that it's almost entirely surrounded by new developed, you know, I guess you probably townhouses, but new developments, new properties. And I can see a potential future where everybody that bought one of those houses is going to be calling their municipality saying, you know, get rid of this thing. They're going to be going, you know, just complaining about it. And, and NIMBYism, I'm not a big fan, but it's here to stay. Right. And, and mm-hmm. people are probably going to push for that to be redeveloped. So that is a interesting uh, potential exit. We actually already, we have had, uh, not necessarily talks, but even the, the lender was like, yeah, this land is probably going to be redeveloped. The appraiser said the same thing. Multiple parties had said that. So that's kind of why we were like, we were okay paying the price that we did because it wasn't a typical, you know, we know there's upside there and we're going to get the cash flow, but the land is more than likely going to be worth more than the actual asset itself. And and where I live in Charleston, it's like that too, right? A lot of assets are getting turned over and redeveloped because the land is worth more to other parties than what the current use of it is. And it's important to understand that when you're buying real estate that I always... What's the exit strategy? What's the worst case scenario? That's how I look at parks. And I look at investments. What is the exit strategy? Number one, if there's not an out, I don't want to buy it, right? If I if I if I don't have a feasible out, I don't necessarily even want to look at the mobile home park because um, or another asset class. But that's typically how we look at these things, and a lot of times the covered land play helps. So I personally love this asset class, and I, I hope it grows more, and I hope we are allowed to develop some parks because I think there's a real need for it. It's just a lot of the times the NIMBYism, like you said, we don't get approval and we're always facing an uphill battle. Absolutely. Absolutely. So many of these places, so many people think they want affordable housing, but then, you know, you see just constant opposition to new development or actually affordable housing left and right. I'm in some, you know, local neighborhood groups and people are complaining about the cost of housing, but also openly opposing any new high density development in our area. And you cannot have both. It's basic supply and demand. We need more housing for anything to be affordable. Exactly. 
Yeah. Great. Well, right now we're going to take a quick break for our sponsor. The first step to growing your wealth is tracking your wealth, income, spending, and everything else about your finances. You can start tracking your wealth for free and get six free months of wealth advisory with personal capital by going to escapingwallstreet.com and using our link. Create your free account today and automate the way you track your money. Personal capital is my preferred way to track my finances, and now we're making that available for listeners. Terms and conditions apply. See the personal capital website for details. Once again, to get the offer, go to escapingwallstreet.com and use our link. Back to the show. All right, Ryan, I've got three questions. I ask every guest on the show, are you ready? I think so. So yeah, I'm ready. (laughs) Great. First one, what is the best investment you ever made other than in your education? Actually, believe it or not, my first mobile home park. I emptied my taking the risk too. I emptied my 401k, uh, which is a total massive move against society. Nobody, you know, now like a lot of people look at me like I'm crazy and whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, took the tax hit, paid 50% of it, whatever, invested it in a mobile home park. And we sold that park last year and we literally six times our money. So that was my best investment to date. Typically, I try to double my money, but um, that was my best investment today and could be into the future. Not sure. Nice. We had the best investment. Now we go to the other side of that coin, the worst investment. What is the worst investment you ever made? I would say it doesn't necessarily have to do with the asset itself. It was getting into uh, being super hungry to be successful and maybe not vetting partner's interest long-term. And so being in the wrong partnership from the general partnership side and buying a few mobile home parks together, while I have not to date, knock on wood, lost money on an investment. So it's hard to say what's my worst investment. We've obviously not made as much as what we maybe had anticipated, but it would it would be for me the partnership thing. And if I don't get along with somebody initially, I may give it a second chance, but if our interests aren't aligned, even if we're total opposites and we make good good partners, it's got to fit naturally, and it actually can be worse than like getting a divorce. Like honestly, it can make your life worse because if you think about the time that you work, right? Most people work eight to five, nine to six. That's way more than what you're spending potentially with your significant other because you're only really with your significant other in the evenings and on the weekends, and you may live with them, but. Work and money are way different. People take that way differently than personal relationship. I would say partnership. That was my worst. But it just, you know, nothing hate towards the person. It just, we just didn't align together. Well, that's that's wisdom. And a lot of times that wisdom only really comes from, from personal firsthand experience. So I appreciate that. My favorite question here at the end of the show is what is the most important lesson you've learned in business and investing? Uh, that you definitely need to like believe in yourself and you have to be educated. That is, if you're not knowledgeable on a subject and you're going to plan to be a general partner or go buy your deal yourself and then operate it, you have to be educated at least minimally, uh, you know, read one book or listen to a podcast. And obviously, I'd say do more than that. But that would be my number one thing. Get educated and then also be confident in your abilities and know your abilities. Like I'm good at... Typically, I'm good, good at networking, talking with people. I enjoy doing that. I help I like help I like helping others and educating others. So like reaching out to guys like me that have been there and done that. And then uh, just being confident in yourself and, and the ability to take risks. Because if you're, you're not confident, it's going to like, or even somewhat sure, 
it's going to relay the other investors and basically it's going to make them cautious and they're not going to want to maybe partner with you. And the first deal is always the hardest. So maybe you go buy it on your own and then you get a proven track record. I didn't have that luxury, but being confident, being educated is probably the most important lesson other than, you know, trying to buy good deals. But, you know, that's kind of just an, an inherent thing with investing, right? You're always looking to do a good, good deal, but it's more on the personal side, like personal development. That is probably the most important thing. And it is for sure. Nice. Well, Ryan, thank you so much for joining us today and sharing all of these lessons with us. If folks want to reach out, if they want to get in touch with you, if they want to learn more or anything like that, where can they track you down? They can find me on Facebook, Instagram, LinkedIn, just my name, um, Ryan Grony. And you can message me there um, or follow me or whatever, whatever have you. And uh, reach out to me via those streams. And I'm happy to jump on the phone or trade emails with somebody about potential investment or just answer questions on mobile home parks. Um, I know we didn't go too in-depth here on the actual operations of parks, which is totally fine. And we can save it for another show. Awesome. Well, thank you once again for joining us today. To everybody out there, thank you for tuning in. If you're enjoying the show, please leave us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts. Five stars if you don't mind, guys. I appreciate that so much. That helps other people learn about the show because that helps us rank higher in the Apple Podcast ecosystem. And I'm always honest with you guys, that gives me a nice little warm and fuzzy feeling because I get to see that you're engaging with the content and you're escaping the Wall Street casino along with us. If you know anyone who could use a little bit more passive wealth in their lives, please share the show with them and bring them into the tribe. I want to thank you for tuning in once again. Don't forget to subscribe and catch us here every Monday, Tuesday, and Thursday. I hope you have a great rest of your day today and we'll talk to you on the next one. Bye-bye.